third issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 208 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I just spent a week with virtually no internet. Big recommend. Huge. Yeah, I'm kind of jealous. It sounds great. It was. It was accidental. I could have probably guessed there would be patchy signal at best in the Outer Hebrides, but yep, absolutely zilch a lot of the time. Now, Mick, I didn't realise you were going to the Outer Hebrides. Why did you go to the Outer Hebrides? Talk me through it. My lovely friend Charlotte got hitched and her new husband, Andy, his family have got land in the Outer Hebrides on Lewis. And so that's where they had it. And it's a beautiful island and it's really wild. It was really wild. And the weather was so mad that the marquee blew away. (laughs) Ah, Drama! (laughs) (laughs) A marquee that fit 180 people. This shit was massive. And it it decided it wanted to be in the field next door. So bye. (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I have hot water again, which is exciting. Also big recommend. But I've I've just remembered that since I've last said I'm Hannah Dunleavy on this podcast, I taught my mum to use an iPhone. Wowzers. Wow. Yeah. Wowzers on both counts. Well done that you can finally wash and also, well done that Mary can, I don't know, can, what can she use? What's been her biggest achievement mm. in the introduction to the iPhone? Well, she can make a phone call. I mean, people don't use it for that, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> and receive a phone call. And she can also receive and read a text message. Um, and she can do a wardle. We're starting with small steps. Baby steps, yeah. Baby I like steps, it. And yeah. you've also gone quite old school, so I, I'm, I'm enjoying that. Well, to be fair, I don't know how much time my mom... Gen- oh, she can use the camera as well. Um, I don't know how much time she was planning to spend on WhatsApp or, you know, Facebook. You might have created a monster. Yeah, she's going to be fucking QAnon in 30 seconds. <laughs> she's not. She's absolutely not. <laughs> my mum's quite phone literate, I would say. But she does have a phone that I don't know what the fuck is wrong with it. There's a problem with it. And it doesn't work unless you put it on speaker, basically. I've suggested to her this is quite a fundamental flaw and she should probably (laughs) look into it. Every fucking time she answers her phone, every time without fail, she forgets that this is a thing and she gets really angry, being like, hello, hello, hello. (laughs) The cafe doesn't work. It It doesn't work and it hasn't worked for ages. That's why yeah. it's not working. Yeah. It's really infuriating to, to bear witness to. I can't lie. <laughs> Can I just give you an example of how phone literate my mum is? I answered the phone this morning, my phone, because she was ringing. And I said, hello. And she said, hello. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I could just leave it there, couldn't I? But, oh gosh, she's going to be angry with me for talking about this. But she said, hello. And I was like, hello. And she said, who's that? And I said, it's Hannah. And she said, well, isn't that weird? She said, I called the doctor and you answered. And I said, no, you called me. And I answered. (laughs) And she said, no, I absolutely pushed the numbers for the doctor. So now can you reassess how hard it was that I've taught her to answer an iPhone? You're a fucking genius, Hannah. Well done. I am. A very clean genius. The cleaniest. Yeah. Nice. I'm Jennifer, and the most heartwarming sight ever is apparently a two-year-old strumming a guitar and headbanging to Jimi Hendrix. Joy. And I am talking about my two-year-old, who turned two. <laughs> yeah. Happy birthday, Lyra. Happy birthday, Squeaks. My brother gave her a guitar for her birthday because she, she loves a bit of music, or Mick Mick, as she calls it. Oh, hello. 
Yep. She kind of like scratched the strings a little bit in the way that it sounds a bit like at the beginning of Voodoo Child. Obviously, that's not what she was playing. It just sounded... And I said, oh, she'd play a bit of Hendrix for your squeaks. So I put on Voodoo Child and uh, she had a guitar and she literally like... With no prompting from anyone, she was just like, love and life, <laughs> head banging, thrashing away at her guitar. And I, I wish that I had been able to use Spotify and my camera at the same time. Maybe you can teach me, Hannah. I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was beautiful. It was such a joyous thing to behold. Lovely stuff. Oh, Ethan did that once. I can't remember what was on. And he was about, I'd say about... 11 months old this is more things that I just shouldn't be saying in public about 11 (laughs) months old and he was doing this full like whole top of his body was dancing to whatever he was dancing to like that and I was filming him on my really crappy phone and I was so busy doing it that he fell off the sofa (laughs) <laughs> and so you just kicked him under it and walked out the room so I just deleted that video <laughs> and it's never been spoken of until now I think you should move us on Hannah before the authorities get involved yeah coming up I talked to Teresa Lim about her first book The Interpreter's Daughter which recounts what happened when she set out to trace her family history and discovered a hidden tale about her great aunt who was check this out A sworn spinster, woman after my own heart. In Jenny of the Blocks, I chat to journalist Natasha Everett about the Her Game 2 campaign and why men's football is still an unwelcoming place for women. And we ask not what would John Woo do, but why and how and why would John Woo do, as we watch 1997's Face Off in this week's Rated or Dated. But first, referendums, strikes... Dogs and cats living together with their owners. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Slightly less anxiety inducing than the prospect of Donald Trump in Lycra. Uh, Your face, Hannah. Why? (laughs) Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You do know what I'm talking about. Well, Biden fell off his bike, didn't he? He did. And Trump thought it was really funny. He pledged that he would never ride a bicycle which i believe i believe that he will never ride a bicycle yeah (laughs) i believe he's possibly never ridden a bicycle to be honest it's almost like if it was on his official pledges it'd probably be the only reason to vote for him would be that he'd (laughs) pledged not to ride a bicycle one thing i would say about uh about biden's slow-mo falling off he's got cleats on he's got you know the things where you clip your feet in yeah and basically, it's a rite of passage of anyone who wears cleats that they must fall off their bike in slow motion because they're not—they're a bit tricky to get your feet out yeah. of at speed. So when you're stopping, you don't do it in time to put a foot down. You just very slowly. <laughs> the first time I went out, uh, <laughs> the first time I ever went out wearing cleats was in a group, a cycling club, a local cycling club, in a group of them. And um, they were all like quite hardcore and, and I was not. It was a, quite an icy day as well. And I'd, it had happened to me once. And then on the second time, it took me ages to get to the top of this hill. I got to the top of the hill. They were all there waiting for me. And I wailed, oh, no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we've all been there, Joe. We've all been there. I mean, he's quite old to be falling off his bike. Quite, I hope he's all right. He's quite old. Those falls don't hurt. It's very slow. Very slow. 
So, Jen, fancy talking about Scottish independence? Sure. That's what the UK <laughs> needs. Another incredibly divisive topic that you can get piled on for a fortnight for asking seemingly ordinary questions. Hooray! Let me do some compulsory throat clearing before we start. If Scotland no longer wants to be part of the UK, who am I to say no? I'd be sad if it did come to that, but I've neither the correct address to have a vote, nor the expertise, or indeed the ability to predict the future, so I am steering well clear of having an opinion. Joining me? Yeah, I mean, I I thought the first time it happened is a bit like... Scotland would be a bit like Woolworths, like you wouldn't know how sad you were to lose it (laughs) until it was gone. Last week, Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, unveiled what she said was a refreshed case for independence, adding that her government had an indisputable mandate for a second independence referendum. Prime Minister Boris Johnson didn't agree, natch, saying the result of the 2014 referendum in which 55% of voters said that they wanted to stay in the UK should be respected. I mean, it's positive that he respects something, I suppose. (laughs) That referendum was given the green light by David Cameron after the SNP's 2011 landslide election in Holyrood gave it what was described as a clear mandate. On Sunday, the Constitution Secretary, Angus Robertson, told the BBC that the Scottish Government will continue to press for the gold standard set by the 2014 independence referendum process. He refused to comment on reports that Sturgeon was planning a softer, consultative referendum in order to bypass Westminster's refusal to grant Holyrood the powers to hold a legal vote. And I think that what that says is that Scotland gets to vote on whether it wants a referendum. Hmm. Uh, That's my understanding of that. Anyway, Sturgeon is expected to make further announcements before the summer recess. So, more news as it very much happens. No opinions, though. Nope, none at all. I'd be sad to lose them. I wouldn't want them to go, but I understand they can do what they want to do. Yeah. As many of you will, of course, know, this week strikes are planned across England, Wales and Scotland by network rail employees as well as onboard and station staff working for 13 different train operators. By the time you hear this on Wednesday, we will be one day into three days of industrial action, which are due to cause commuter chaos throughout much of the week. We're going back to the 70s, declared the sun with a picture of a semi-naked woman next to the front page splash. The RMT union is proposing action in response to the threat of thousands of job losses and a pay freeze during a pretty tricky time, financially speaking. It's worth a mention that neither the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps nor any other ministers have bothered to participate in talks with the RMT. Grant Shapps, for fuck's sake. How is he still hanging around like a terrible smell? How is he a thing? Shaps is uh, presumably too busy working through his Ladybird book of commercial vehicles <laughs> to be participating in any talks. Or he might be busy chatting to business secretary Kwasi Kwarteng, whose response, according to reports, is to, well, it's to repeal laws which currently ban businesses from using temporary staff to replace those on strike. Mm. Yeah. 
According to the Times, the statutory instrument for making this change will be tabled this week and will take effect from mid-July. Just FYI, that ban has been in place since 1973, so I guess the sun was right about (laughs) something. Look, I don't mean to be dismissive. Train strikes are annoying. If you're dependent on the rail network for transport, I've had to postpone a talk I was supposed to be giving in Manchester at the weekend and a trip to a documentary festival in Sheffield. It's bollocks. But while it is personally a bit inconvenient, I vehemently defend the rights of others to take industrial action. It's a hard-won right, along with a number of other forms of protest, that this government is systematically legally undermining. And if these changes go through, it will make it much harder to take a stand against unfair paying conditions at work, not just for rail staff, but for all of us, should we ever need it. Yeah, I agree. How would this even solve the this problem, though? Where are, where are the presumably just dozens of people who could just pick up driving a train? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I guess like you must, there must be agency staff for such things, right? Because how do they cover holidays and shit like that? I don't know. I, I mean, like, I, I guess they exist. But yeah, I would think you're right. Not in the numbers that would be required in the event of, of something like this. Maybe it's just, I don't know, that hadn't even occurred to me, Hannah. Maybe they're just sort of, they just want to look like they're tough on strikes, tough on the causes of strikes. There's so many jobs that that would be the case. You know, anybody Mm. who's driving any kind of vehicle that requires a special license for it or the fire service, what happens if they strike again? I mean, it doesn't really, it's just, to me, it just looks like bombast. Although you are right, because people who can presumably be replaced or they Mm. think can be replaced will be. Well, there's quite a lot of, I think there's quite a lot of other strikes possibly in the offing. And I don't know, when did this last happen, Hannah? Um, It tends to be when uh, the government is fucking shit and doing horrible things to people. Like, I do get the argument that it is maybe a difficult time for people working for you know working on trains working for rail companies it is a difficult time because obviously a lot less people are using those services and they are being like very heavily subsidized by the government at the moment so maybe it is a bit presentationally difficult to be asking for more money but also at the same time pay freezes are shit aren't they like you know people got to eat join the union people i fully agree yeah do you want a bit of good news jim apart from the fact that everyone's going to go and join their union So, as many of you will doubtless know, pet ownership and home ownership very much go together. If you're renting from a private landlord, you'll most likely be told no pets are allowed, which often means, and I know someone this has just happened to, pets have to be given up or fostered out in order for their owner to be able to find somewhere to live. And I think we can all agree that this is horrible. Yes. But... Good news fanfare, the publication of a white paper last week could put an end to landlords' refusal to accommodate pets or indeed children or tenants on benefits, which are also sometimes given as reasons for refusing to rent to an applicant. The government says that the fairer private rented sector white paper, catchy, will redress the balance between landlords and privately renting households across England, of which there are 4.4 million. 
The decent homes living standard will also be extended to the private sector. I mean, why the fuck is it not there already? But anyway, meaning homes must be free from serious health and safety hazards and landlords must keep homes in a good state of repair so renters have clean, appropriate and usable facilities. I say again, why is they not the rules already? Mm. No fault section 21 evictions that allow landlords to terminate tenancies without giving any reason will also be outlawed. But hang on, Hannah, this is the government, our government saying this. Can it possibly be true? Hmm. Well, let's hand over to Lisa Nandy, Labour's shadow levelling up. God, I can't take that seriously as a title. But anyway, levelling up and housing secretary. She said, more security for renters is welcome, but action is needed now, not after yet another consultation. While the government has dithered and delays, rents and evictions have shot up. Labour is calling for emergency legislation to immediately end no-fault evictions and give people more security in their home. I mean, amen to that. But not making people give up their pets because you want that carpet you installed in the mid-70s to last another 20 years is certainly a start. Yes, to all of the above. Yeah. I actually know quite a few people at the moment who have pets living with them that aren't their pets. Oh. Yeah. That's sad. Isn't it? More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. Welcome to Sexism of the Week. Hannah, you'd better grab your screaming pillow. (laughs) Look, you'll know the deal on statistics around women and violent crimes, including cases of sexual violence. But in case you don't, they continue to be, spoiler alert, horrific. In their lifetime, one in three women globally are subjected to physical or sexual violence. And additionally, as we've said on the podcast many times, the rate of convictions for rape cases in the UK is appalling. The last figures available showed of the more than 67,000 rape offences recorded in England and Wales in the year to December 2021, just 1,557 resulted in prosecutions. The conviction rate is, of course, lower still. So what do we need from the authorities to turn this situation around? It's pretty difficult because what we actually need is wholesale systemic and societal changes in attitudes to women. But with the realistic view that this is a long-term goal, two millennia and counting like, what can be done? Well, how about better support for victims of sexual crime and a kinder legal system which treats them less like they are the ones on trial? You're dreaming. Well, I know. I, I mean, I I literally am. <laughs> <laughs> These are both factors which are often identified as reasons why convictions are so low. So why then has the government introduced new guidance on pre-trial therapy for rape victims, which does exactly the opposite? Previously, in rape cases, victims' therapy notes were only supposed to be disclosed where it was thought that they would undermine the prosecution or support the defence. However... New guidance lowers the bar, stating that therapy notes may be requested if it is thought that they would be, and I quote, relevant to the case. What it doesn't do is define what relevant means. Arguably, if you're seeking therapy because you've been raped, the content of your sessions is automatically going to be pretty relevant, right? Yeah, you would think to some degree that 
you might talk about previous sexual experience or current sexual experience linked to this event. And therefore, that's the sort of shit that they put forward as like, you know, almost essentially bad character for women. So, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly that. And that is one of the points, you know, if the question is, why does that matter? This is where we come back to that tricky issue of societal change, because if bitches be crazy, and we all know that they are, not only could that guidance serve to undermine victims whose cases do make it to court, but it could also deter women from seeking much needed therapy or indeed from even pursuing a conviction in the first place. More than 100 Labour MPs have now written to the Prime Minister asking him to scrap the new guidance because of this perceived harm. It's worth also noting at this stage that for the same reporting period, the year up to December 2021, 61% of police investigations into reported rapes collapsed because the victim withdrew their complaint or did not support further action. Mm. There'd be lots of reasons why people would withdraw their complaints, but I would suggest probably a good deal of those will be in the knowledge of how shit it is going to be for them if they do get as far as a prosecution. Absolutely. It's also because it takes so fucking long. You know, it is a barrier to moving on. Yeah. Because you can't deal with this and put it in whatever place you want to put it in. You've got to keep it in some way in your mind. I'm not saying you can ever, like, yeah. put things away completely, but do you know what I mean? But the knowledge you're going to probably likely have to relive this thing publicly soon. We were having a conversation just earlier, weren't we, about whether or not, you know, it's good to keep mm. pushing things or it's good to let things go. And, yeah, for some people, inevitably, for their mental health, they're just going to have yeah. to let it go. Yeah, this is shit. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Teresa Lim whose first book, The Interpreter's Daughter, is out on the 23rd of June, which for people listening is tomorrow. In it, Teresa uncovers some family history and finds the hidden story of her spinster great-aunt Fanny, whose fate was tied with the fall of Singapore. And it's an absolutely cracking read. Thank you for joining us, Teresa. It's my pleasure, Hannah. Now, probably the best place to start is, I'm sure lots of our listeners have had a poke around in their family history. So what was the impetus for you? Actually, it really was arriving in London, not knowing very many people at all, and feeling a bit disconnected and lonely and homesick. And I decided that I have lots of lovely cousins and they were communicating with me by email, sending recipes One of them lives in Australia, one lives in Germany, and one lives in Sweden. And they were communicating lovely recipes, home recipes from Singapore, based on adjustments they had to make living where they they were living. And I thought, well, great, let's do a cookbook, because we all love eating. And they were not interested. And I was desperate to get them interested. And I thought, well, maybe if I did something, you know, we, we are first and second cousins. So actually, the ancestor who connects us is our great-grandfather. We know nothing about him. If I wrote a little one-page thing on him, that might just get them into it a little mm. bit more. And that's how I started. Yeah, and the rest is history. And the rest is <laughs> Very history. much. Now, I've done some of my family trait, and so I am aware that the minute you step outside of the very, very well-organised world of British record keeping that things become a bit harder 
and also things become a bit harder because you know memory is strange and there are stories but some of them are understated and some of them are overstated and it is really hard so reading this book I cannot believe how much you have found out how much of an endurance test was that it was I have to say when I started I had no hope of finding anything out because apart from anything else my great-grandfather was one of several hundred thousand Chinese men in the British colony of Singapore they didn't know much English why would I find him on a British record Mm. I had no idea how to look for him I had no hope of finding him but it's funny how once you start looking you make even scratch the surface anybody can do this and you Sometimes doors just open oh. and all, it's almost as if it's, someone's been waiting for you to knock and the moment you knock, however gently, it opens. But I also did feel a couple of times that is, I almost felt my great-grandfather and my great-aunt were up there helping me, oh. you know, because some things just almost fell on my lap. For instance, when I got in touch with the university that she went, supposed to have gone to, my mother said she'd gone to the University of Hong Kong, but there was, I mean, that's just what my mother said. When Mm. I wrote to them, they said all records had been lost during the Japanese occupation of Hong Kong, and they didn't have anything from that period. And and when I emailed the author of a book on Hong uh, Hong Kong University to say, help, do you have any idea how I might do this, how how I might find my, my great aunt? She wasn't someone I knew. She was just someone whose email I found, she actually replied and said, I've retired by trying my colleague who's still at the university. And when I emailed him, he emailed right back and said, I'm writing another book on the university and I've got her records. I've got Fanny's records. That's incredible. Just like that, yeah. yeah. It was amazing. You, you do also have this insane document, though, the family book. I had some yes. sort of crazy envy that you have this just <laughs> amazing amazing thing. Can you explain to listeners what a family book is? It's really a family genealogy that not all Chinese families in China had them, but those where there was some level of education in the villages, they would keep a record of you know who was born to whom and so on. And if they had education, they would then compile it in a, a personal book that belonged to the family. Now, I had heard about this family book but nobody was really interested in it because none of us can read Chinese. And it's very dense. I mean, it's not easy Chinese, mm. very difficult Chinese. And then later I was told about this. Uh, I was actually sent a copy of it by uh, uh, an uncle in Canada. And I was lucky enough to get it translated. It wasn't easy getting it translated because a lot of Chinese today don't understand old characters. Yeah. And so it wasn't easy, but I, I did manage to get translated and it made it was terrific. You know, suddenly you could you could read the name of your great grandfather's great grandfather, know that he had, you know, ten sons and uh, from three concubines and a wife and two three concubines <laughs> and they come alive because you know, you think those ten sons, some of them did well, some of them did less well mm-hmm. at, at at school. That must have been a, a, a quite quite a vicious atmosphere, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what's interesting as well when you you pick a generation from within your family yes. and compare it to what you know was happening in that region at the time, and yes. thinking 
as well as just being these names, they were living through this famine or this plague yes. or this war yes. or this yes. all of these things that people live through. Absolutely. It's so fascinating. Now, the interpreter in the title of your book is your great-grandfather. Now, reading the book, what I found inc- really interesting about him is there's absolutely no way I'd describe him as a feminist. But no. for a man of his generation, the way he treated his daughters appeared to be quite progressive. And I wondered how you felt about him as a man, having learned, you know, how he interacted with his children, particularly with his daughters. I love finding out more about him because I realised he was a man who loved women. I mean, he loved his daughters at the time when men, Chinese men didn't love their daughters, mm. you know, not really. They loved their sons, but not their daughters. And he was really quite imaginative in supporting his youngest daughter going to university and he made sacrifices for that but more than that in taking back his eldest daughter my grandmother after she'd married and moved out Mm. when that was a taboo and when it was uh, the superstition was when you take back a married daughter you then it's a curse on your family Mm. i mean the courage he had doing that you know he just disregarded all that and took her back I, I have a lot of respect for that. Yes, you're quite right. He wasn't a feminist. In the time when he lived, it was acceptable to, to have concubines. And it's quite shocking that his concubine was mm. only slightly older than his eldest daughter. You know, he wasn't a feminist in that sense. But I think he respected women. And he certainly loved his wife. He never never had a concubine while his wife was alive. Mm. And he, he, he really honoured her by adding her name to the family book because no woman's name enters the family book. Women aren't important enough. Yeah. But he put it in, he put it in after she died. Yeah, that really kind of wrung my heart a bit. Yeah. Like, uh, my mother also talked an awful lot about him. Mm. My mother loved him. She adored him. He came across as being very gentle, very gentle, very kind not just to his daughters, but to his granddaughters. And he, my mother claimed she was his favourite. I mean, you know, that's, that's what she thinks. <laughs> but I, I, I thought that's rather nice that, you know, he had grandsons and granddaughters, but his eldest granddaughter thinks she's the favourite. He must have been very kind to her. Yeah. He wouldn't have discriminated between her and the boys. And that's, that's nice, yeah. His daughter that we're talking about, yes. great aunt, Fanny, who I, I think we should probably not not go too deeply into her story because it is so interesting. But there's something that I want to touch on, and everyone will know why who's listening, is that she was a sworn spinster, and I would like to know a little bit more about that. I was floored by how the working-class women of 19th-century South China were so clever in grabbing an opportunity to make their lives better. Women in that time had to marry. You you know, it was the way a family could get rid of mouths, which were people who were unproductive. Mm. Because women weren't, for a long time, they had bound feet. So they couldn't do very much manual labor. But in that part of China, a lot of women didn't have bound feet. They were more peasant women, true. But there was no aspiration to refine them by binding their feet they were allowed to help help out mm. in in the fields or in um 
pickling the vegetables that they harvested. And when they started earning money and earning a kind of status in the family, they very quickly realized when the silk industry took off and they started earning real money, they suddenly realized that they could change the way their lives bore out. They didn't have to marry men whom they'd never met before, who on the whole had rather cruel mothers. Mothers-in-law were just just almost routinely nasty to their daughters-in-law because they suffered under their mothers-in-law. Uh. When their sons married, they didn't give their daughters-in-law a good time. These stories were so real and so many of them that a lot of young brides used to kill themselves because they couldn't bear the lives that they had married into. And of course, you weren't really allowed to go back to see your family. And very often you moved quite far from your family um, you know, to a, a village many, many miles away. Yeah. And they decided they didn't want to marry and they wanted to carry on being independent. And they decided that they had to marry because their families didn't want them living in the home. So they said, well, look, we, we're earning enough money now to move away. And then, of course, the next thing you, 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 the family's worried about is women, single women, mm. unmarried women moving away. They could end up being prostitutes or have the reputation of being prostitutes. And so these women said, OK, then we'll take a vow of celibacy and will be sworn spinsters, a spinster being someone who is celibate, who is pure. Uh, so you needn't worry that we're going to impugn the family reputation. Mm. And they had the economic power to do that because by then they were earning so much money from the silk industry with Europe buying a lot of the silk that they were breadwinners of their families. They weren't just not depending on the family finances. They mm. were actually supporting their families. So they could call the shots. I just thought, what sassy women. Mm. You know, they, they just they just went for it. They you know, they, there was no holding back, no kind of um, oh I don't know if I can ask for this, I don't know if I can ask for that. They just kind of laid down their terms and they did it. Yeah. It was a big deal though, wasn't it? It was It was it, a big deal. Took this oath and it was you know, there was no going back from it. To go yes. back from the oath would be shameful and in, yes. in a world yes. of superstition, you know, dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Yes. So interesting. I think how women get round the patriarchy, like yes. never ceases to amaze yes. me. Yeah. Yes. It's how women get round the patriarchy. And in this case, it's not just one woman or several women. It was a whole kind of um, sec- section of women. Yeah. You know, and, and it just spread like wildfire. And it got so popular, you know, this way of, opting out of marriage. Marriage was seen as something really unattractive and and cruel, traumatic. The way of opting out, it became so popular that that there had to be a rule. Society then imposed a rule and said, okay, you you can carry on doing this, but each family can't have more than two sworn spinsters. So only one daughter is allowed to be a sworn spinster, not more than one. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. There's always a way. They, someone yeah, always comes yeah. up and messes it up, don't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> In the interpreter's daughter, you recount what happened at the fall of Singapore when the Japanese invaded during the Second World War, and it's a piece of history that. When we talk about the Second World War in Europe, we mostly only talk about Europe. We don't tend to talk about, you know, the war in the Pacific or the war in Africa. Indeed, we we, we don't talk about it that much. So 
I think for anyone who doesn't know about what happened when Singapore fell, it will be interesting. But even for people who don't, the way that you sort of intercut it with what your family is doing at those precise moments, I thought was absolutely fascinating. So yeah, well done. I love a bit of history and some great history in there. What I want to know to end with is how, having discovered you know, that you are, you come from these people, which I think is is what family history, like, shows you, isn't it? You're like, oh, that's why I'm really stubborn, or that's why I'm this sort of thing. How yeah. do you feel about your family? How do you feel about Singapore? How do you feel about, you know, yourself having discovered all of this? When I read the family book for the first time, and mind you, it wasn't that easy to read because, um, as I mentioned in the book, antiquated Chinese becomes antiquated English when translated, and it was quite quite all over the place, and you had to kind of piece it together. But there were bits where my there was an introduction where my great grandfather wrote what he wanted this family genealogy, what kind of legacy he wanted it to be for mm-hmm. future generations, and it was lovely to hear his voice directly. And I just felt when I read his name, read what he wrote and read the names of the people that came before him, I felt really bizarrely connected to all of them. And I I guess I slightly feel that within our genes, there is a kind of living continuum that connects us to everyone in our past. So your mother's side, you know, going back, I don't know, a a thousand years, Mm. your father's side going back a thousand years, we won't know their names, you know, some of them will never discover, but whatever they were, they, they're inside us now because we've inherited those genes yeah. and you, you aren't ever lonely. You're never alone. You always have them with you. And, and that's, that was rather a joyous realization, actually, that you can never be alone. You, you always have like a whole tribe inside you, you know, whether you listen to them or not yeah and whether you you know whether you have the characteristics or not they're there yeah that's a really interesting point when i in lockdown i grew my hair i used to dye it and i grew my yes. gray out and i discovered yes. that i had same, same i had this big <laughs> yes. black streak yes. at the front of my hair Lovely. and my granddad had one of those oh fantastic like you say, you just think that they are there. Like, yeah. I, I would never have known that. But no, oddly, never... when I think about him, you think, yeah, he's still, weirdly, his genes are yes. still here in my head. He's there. That I have, he's yeah. there. Absolutely. Teresa, this has been absolutely fantastic. I know it's it's a terrible question to ask people when they're promoting one book, if there's going to be a second book. But, you know, have you got something else on the go? Um, I do, actually. I mean, I mean, if you, you'd ask me... Six months ago, nine. Uh, you know, I mean, even yeah, six months ago, I I would have been stumped. But you you kind of need the headspace to move on and think about something else. But um, I have started to think about uh, another project, and and that is this time it's about my father's side of the family, and I don't know much about them, but they're also very interesting. <laughs> I would imagine I don't know much about them is not a state of affairs that's going to go on for very long, Teresa. <laughs> I imagine that in a couple of years' time we'll be having this same conversation about somebody well, about a second book. Um, well, thank you, so. thank you so much for your time. This has been excellent. Hannah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am joined 
by sports journalist and ambassador for her game to Natasha Everett. Hello, Natasha. How are you doing? Hi, Jen. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? All right. As discussed in the brightest room in the world, so kind of squinting <laughs> at Tash like like a sort of vampire who's never seen the sun before for boring reasons i'm not going to go into them i'm going to stop this now before i go down a thread of talking about curtains so tash you talking to me today about her game too which is a campaign relating to sexism in football i presume predominantly in the men's game rather than the women's game but can you tell me a little bit more about it please yeah, so as you said, yeah, her game too, it focuses mainly on um, stomping out sexism within football. Um, obviously, as you pointed out, yeah, a lot of the time, unfortunately, it's within the men's game that women do receive abuse. But the campaign also aims at making football a more welcoming place for women, whether that's not, it's not just for fans of the men's game, it's for fans of the women's game or female players or women that work within the football industry, just trying to eradicate sexism from all those different avenues, really. But the campaign's about a year old now, and they've partnered with over 150 clubs now from across the football pyramid. So, yeah, it's still in its infancy, really, which is crazy to think, especially because they've partnered with some Premier League clubs already, which is really good. But, yeah, that is, that, that is her game, too. I mean, we see really kind of high profile incidents of sexism in football so I guess like the obvious thing that comes up all the time is female assistant referees and referees Mm -hmm. and pundits and they cause these sort of social media storms and then they go away again do you think that there is a clear demonstrable need for campaigns like her game too yeah, I, I would say so, and I think I, I would have thought that anyway without the campaign, but I think since I've been involved in it, it's actually opened my eyes to just how much we, we do need it. It's actually exacerbated the need for it, just purely because listening to other people's stories that have had much worse experiences than me. And just I think also the sheer amount of people that have really connected with it and said, oh, like finally there's a campaign that talks about this, because I think for a lot of people, including myself, and other female fans that I've spoken to, I think it's the first time that people have actually vocalised it and actually come together to try and do something about it. And I think because it's meant so much to so many different people and how quickly it's grown within its first year, I think it it definitely shows us there's a lot to be done with women being more welcome in football, even though it's taken huge strides, I can imagine, in the last 10, 15 years, what it was like back then, but there still is definitely a way to go. Women of my generation perhaps will recognise this, uh, and, and perhaps you won't because you're a bit younger than me. You're 23, a bit younger than me. You're loads younger than me. You're 23. Um, so in my day, in my day, if you were a woman who likes football or a teenage girl who likes football, the assumption that was immediately made about you was that you were either gay or mm-hmm. you were sort of using it as a way to like get in men's pants. Is that still yeah. the case? Don't get me wrong. I feel like that stereotype definitely still exists. I wouldn't say the first one. I mean, this is just my experience. So I might be completely ignorant to it. But in my opinion, I don't think people get like the lesbian label as soon as you tell them that you're into football anymore. 
But I do definitely think the other side of it, where it's, oh, you're doing it for male attention and you're just doing it as a bit of a pick-me thing and you're not actually that interested in it, you just go to please men. I think that's definitely still a thing. I think it's definitely not as much anymore, but I've had loads of people say it to me, so I can't even imagine how rife it was about 10 years ago. I always think, like I've written about this a little bit in my book, but I always think what a weird thing to assume like what a strange like to have the confidence of a man to be like is this the only possible explanation she must just want to shag me (laughs) it's it's that's why we need feminism guys that's why we need feminism the audacity of it what i've replied to people when they said that to me is yeah yeah i got up at 6am for fleetwood away because i wanted to impress men (laughs) that was exactly why i spent my hard-earned money on going to really like (laughs) small grounds around league one i disrespect fleetwood but you know what i mean like it's just yeah it's it's laughable really and what specimens you could expect to find at fleetwood away i imagine yeah i know so one of the things that makes me really sad right is that i have like a kind of rotation of male friends who i go to the pub with Mm. to watch big matches right because a lot of my female friends again i am that bit older than you and football is not as widely liked by women of my generation as it potentially Mm. is by women of your generation it's a lot more accessible i think now to younger Mm. women one of the things that makes me sad is that as a man, you can just go to a pub and watch a big match by yourself. But it, I always feel like I would be very self-conscious about doing that on my mm. own. Just like going to a pub, having a pint and watching, like I don't know, a Champions League match or something because I don't have BT Sport at home. That is something that always makes me feel like oh it's a bit unfair isn't it now of course I could go to the pub and watch a Champions League match by myself but I would just feel very self-conscious doing it would women of your generation feel that way is that still kind of like a common thing what do you think it is that puts women off from doing stuff like that I think it depends because I think now I could probably be in the place where I think because I've like followed football my whole life but I think I could like there's a pub outside my work called Redwood that screens football all the time. If there was a game one, I feel like I could easily slot down and whatever. But I feel like I would be comfortable within myself. However, that wouldn't stop other people looking at me and thinking, is that a girl actually sat there watching football when she's actually doing it because she's interested and what? Like, And you would get that kind of reception still. And I still get that from people being like, what, you actually spend your time just watching football? Like, you really do that? I'm like, yes. But I think for a lot of women, and certainly friends my age, I think the ones, especially during the European Championships, really made me think about it because obviously the whole country was going mad I think even people that weren't even interested in football really were kind of hopping on the bandwagon because everyone was going crazy after we got through to the final or whatever and I just saw it within my friends that they really loved it and they just I don't know they were like and I remember some of them saying to me like oh, I just wish that I could be into football like you are and I said well but why aren't you? Like, you know, it's not... If you don't sign up at the age of five and you yeah. miss the boat, then you're not allowed. Like, it's... You know, you can get into it whenever you want. You know, you can come to the valley with me and all this sort of stuff. And they were just like, oh, I just don't know. I just... As you said, I think it's probably changed a little bit in the last decade, but I still think there is that stereotype that it's still a men's game. And I think that's why there are a lot of problems that 
her game two is trying to resolve exists because it still has that perception and even the women that I think would quite like really to get involved with it they just don't feel like it's really a, a dumb thing for them to do I don't know I think one of the things that puts women off is that they don't want to be hassled and they don't want to be yeah. approached by men who you know maybe even very well-meaning men who just want to come and tell you what the what they fucking think about stuff uh yeah. <laughs> like, i don't care i, I don't care yeah. what you think about stuff they leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> but i think one of the things that puts women off might be that sense that like it's kind of inescapable do you think that's something that is still a, a thing for women of your your age i think it's a 20 something year old going to football and it's especially well at the valley i obviously said my family and whatever but if you go to away games it obviously is predominantly male and it's predominantly middle-aged men and you know as i've said before like 99 percent of the time i do have a very like nice experience that i haven't experienced too much of it in my life which is really good i think that says a lot about the chance fan base but i will certainly feel sometimes so even though i think it, it helps us within myself I'm like this is fine you're welcome here I know I have a place here it's fine I know that doesn't stop men still doing it to me that's why I think a lot of women who wouldn't be so comfortable with football they haven't got it their whole lives when they do go and someone says something that like just weird to them <laughs> it's inappropriate it can get under their skin and put them off going which yeah. completely I completely see why and I think that's why it shuts a lot of women out. What I think one of the problems with it is kind of like the sexualization of the female football fan, because, you know, I've heard loads of people say this to me where men have said to them like, oh, are you in a football shirt? And like oh, kind of like making that a yeah. thing. And I think that is still very prominent at football. There is this whole like, oh well, she's a girl that goes to football, so that's like let's see it in that sort of angle. I just blank that out, but not everyone can do that, and I think that's no. a problem. And you shouldn't have to. It's the mental energy, isn't it, that it takes to just be like, well, I'm just going to try not to be bothered by this today. Mm. You shouldn't have to exist in a world where you have to try to not be bothered. To block things out. Things. No, it's, definitely, it's no. ridiculous, and it does mm. ruin the enjoyment of something if you have to do that now there's a little bit of a bit of a clue there as to how i came across natasha you've mentioned it a couple of times the valley <laughs> for any of our listeners who are not familiar uh, the valley is the home of the mighty charlton athletic <laughs> tash you are very active on social media chatting about charlton athletic you know i i follow you on twitter i've had a look at some of the stuff you say i've had a look at some of the reaction you get like generally speaking i feel like the response to you is very good and people ask you like men ask you what do you think about this tash like what, what do you think about our new manager tash i saw the other day and uh you gave a very measured and sensible response by the way but we, we won't go to maybe we'll talk about that after we finish <laughs> the interview day about that yeah <laughs> What kind of reaction do you get on social media? Do you think it's generally quite warm? Do you think that's a Charlton thing? Because I do think that Charlton have tried very hard and successfully to foster a kind of like what people call family environment, which basically means not too sexist, not too racist, not too yeah. awful. <laughs> yeah, And that that is something that I know that the club have really kind of 
focused on doing how is it for you out there are people generally okay with you and do you think that's a Charlton thing or or, or do you think things are improving yeah I think I think in general things are improving but as you pointed out like Charlton I think is as you said it's always got that label family club and like that isn't a lie the work that the club have done particularly from when we were in the Premier League like onwards it's yeah it's definitely made sure that people who are a part of the fan base know that abuse just is not tolerated. Obviously, I think football in a, in a wider sense has seen a rise in, unfortunately, in, in abuse with like racism, whether that's behaviour at games or anything like that. But in, in general, I think being a Trump fan on social media as a woman, I think it's been, I think it's been fine. Like 99% of the time, I don't have a fear of like going on my phone and <laughs> having someone say to me, why are you giving your opinion on Charlton? You're a woman or like anything mm. like that. But it doesn't mean to say that I haven't experienced it. It's not necessarily just been from Charlton fans either. I remember I, I can't remember what I tweeted, but it was, you know, Charlton and Crystal Palace don't like each other. And typically, you know, we will have a bit of a jab at each other now and again. I didn't say anything offensive. I think it was just, you know, just the classic kind of like banter between rivals. And the response that I got from a load of Palace fans, again, you know, I'm sure the majority of Palace's fan base are not like this because I know they do really good work in the community. But, you know, I had people replying to me and like screenshotting my profile picture and likes and tweeting it and saying like, oh, you look like skin and bones and like picking apart my appearance. And there was one time me and another Trump fan, a female Trump fan, were talking about um, sexism in the game. I think it might have been two of her game too, to be honest. And we were just saying how it's so important. And another Charlton fan who I've subsequently blocked because he replied to me saying, I don't know why you're complaining about getting sexist comments online because you've never been raped, so you don't have a leg to stand on. And I did not reply because I thought, you are not worth my energy. But he got about 20 likes on that tweet oh my as well. And basically painted me and this other girl out to be attention-seeking. I don't want to paint out as being all bad because definitely not. I think... The majority of Charlton fans are brilliant. You know what they're like. Like his pop family club, but yeah, he, I think it says a lot that even I, uh, the being a Charlton fan at such a nice club, still experience pretty like nasty stuff. I can't even imagine what it'd be like at another club where there isn't that same community kind of feel. So yeah, it's a food for thought, really. I wanted to ask you a question. I, I'm a bit reluctant to um, link you to a man. Your dad is something of a Charlton legend. He was the <laughs> editor of the fanzine, The Voice of the Valley. Uh, I believe he used to work in Charlton's press team, didn't he? And he did. Yeah. As a journalist himself. Do you think that you kind of found it easier to sort of segue into sports journalism because of the influence that, that your dad had on you or like the encouragement mm. that he gave you? Did it just feel like a totally natural, normal thing for you to get into? It's, it's interesting you say that because I, so I always knew I really like writing. I always knew I really liked sport, but the two never really kind of connected in my head as being, oh, that's probably what I should do in the future. So, yeah, when I was at school and like, well, the whole time growing up, obviously, it was a norm for me for dad to be connected with Charlton. And then when he left the job, he then like carried on, like picked up doing the fanzine again. And he's only uh, recently like announced he's going to stop doing that. So the last edition, I think it's going to be out in September. But 
yeah so obviously I grew up around him doing that doing like late nights doing all the editing but it's weird because well I went to uni to do politics and I never really considered doing sports journalism to be honest I thought oh that'd be really cool like imagine doing that as a job but I just never thought I would be able to do it I guess which is kind of sad in a way but I just never like saw it for myself so when I was doing my A-levels and then when I went to uni and then when I got a job after uni I never really thought oh I'm just going to follow my dad's footsteps and obviously I always took an interest in it but I was never like oh yeah I'm just gonna I'm gonna do exactly what he did and then what happened was I was living with two girls last year in London in a flat share and they both worked for TalkSport and they said there's an opportunity coming up. We know you, you're absolutely obsessed with football. You don't shut up about it. So give it a go. And then it's funny because my dad is convinced that I am trying to copy him and fully follow him <laughs> his footsteps. So I'm like, don't flatter yourself, dad. I'm not doing that. But he, because um, he went to Reading Uni as well. I went to Reading Uni. We both did the same course. Again, I didn't mean to do that on purpose. It was just matched my grades and it was the course I wanted to do. So I ended up going there and then, yeah, now I've ended up doing sports journalism as well. So, yeah, he probably thinks I've completely carbon copied him, but I didn't mean to. (laughs) My mum studied history at Sussex Uni and I did the same. So, you know, these things happen, don't they? It's a nice uni. (laughs) Okay, so Tash, I have a feeling from your social media presence and various other things that you might be one for us to keep an eye on. So can you tell us where our listeners can follow you if they want to check out some of your top class football analysis? (laughs) Um, So my Twitter handle is Natasha Everett, which is E-V-E-R-I-T-T-7. Brilliant. Tash, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jane. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey Noonan, explain yourself. <laughs> Look, listeners, there are blockbusters and then there are balls to the wall action movies. This week, we watched one so firmly in the latter camp and so camply in the latter firm, its balls exploded through the wall. And that is John Woo's 1997 Ode to the Ridiculous, or is it the Sublime? No. <laughs> Face off. So Hong Kong director John Woo's third Hollywood offering and the first in which Woo was given major creative control. Face off is everything you'd expect from a Woo. Q, guns, guns, guns. Doves, 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 stunts galore, more slow-mo Nick Cage than you could dare to dream, and enough ham for all of the sandwiches forever. It stars John Travolta as Big Good, FBI agent Sean Archer, locked in long-term battle with the aforementioned Nick Cage as Big Bad Caster Troy. Face Off is, without doubt, batshit mental, even as it revolves around one simple premise, swapsies. Screenwriters Mike Werb and Michael Colliery engineered a situation where two of the era's biggest film stars swap faces and basically play versions of each other. Travolta taking on some of Cage's weirdo energy and Cage mellowing just a little to play a Travoltian good guy. A bit. A little. (laughs) Despite coming in at a record eight hours long, mostly because 74% of it is in slow motion... Face Off, exec produced by Michael Douglas, no less, was a bona fide box office smash upon its release 
on June the 27th, 1997, earning $245 million worldwide, making it the 11th highest grossing film of 1997. It came in a year flooded with big name, big action films, including Men in Black, The Fifth Element, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, and also starring Maximum Nick Cage, Hannah, over to you. Con Air. Also worth noting that the third in the holy trinity of Cage films, The Rock, came out in June 1996. So it was a fucking awesome 12 months for Cage fans. And we are numerous. (laughs) (laughs) Also, just for fat buffs, it's actually 133 minutes long. It does feel like eight hours sometimes, though. Anyway, the punters loved Face Off, and it still boasts a 92% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics had a lovely time as well dutifully noting face-offs idiocy but praising the stylized action scenes and the travolta cage role reversal legacy wise because yes there is one face-off is said to have inspired infernal affairs which in turn inspired the departed which won an oscar and this news that i'm about to tell you may excite or confound you perhaps like face-off it'll do both at once but there is a sequel in the pipeline oh my wow Who's coming with me? (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, though, have either of you seen Face Off before? No, No. I have not. Okay, let's talk about the plot, which is so utterly absurd it makes the Jabberwocky look like Panorama. FBI agent Sean Archer, Travolta, is obsessed with bringing terrorist Caster Troy, Cage, to justice. Turns out, as well as loving his little brother Pollux and just generally being gleefully wicked, Troy is also responsible for the murder of Archer's young son Mikey during a slow-mo, not-so-merry-go-round. This has put Archer in a well-bad mood, making him unpleasant to work with and not much use to his sad wife, Joan Allen, in the trouser department. Still, at least he regularly puts his whole hand over her face in a really fucking creepy fashion to tell her he loves her. It's his thing. This is important. (laughs) Archer tracks down Troy, who has boarded a plane in Los Angeles. After the plane crashes and Troy is severely injured, possibly dead, it becomes clear there's a big old bomb somewhere in LA and only Pollux, now in a ridiculously high security jail, can help locate and defuse it. But he's refusing to talk to anyone but his brother, Ovs. And so... Archer undergoes top secret surgery to remove his face and replace it with Troy's. It's the only way. At this point, as they look at Archer's face floating in a vat of sterile liquid by the bed, like my grandma's teeth in a favourite mug, the doctor warns Archer, now Troy, that even a big sneeze could dislodge the voice adapter he's wearing to sound like Troy. This seems important. It isn't. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, for a start, he still sounds exactly the fucking same. They both sound the same. Don't start with your plot holes, Hannah. There's too much to get through. Anyway, Archer gets chucked in the big prison to use his disguise to get Pollux to talk. But holy moly, Troy only wakes up from his coma and forces the doctor who performed the surgery to give him Archer's face. Because of course this happens. He then kills everyone who knew about the top secret face swap plan. Because of course he does. Archer now Troy, played by Cage, keep up, enlists a feral Frank Sabotka and some fireworks the inmates have apparently been hoarding to escape the inescapable prison. This is violent and dramatic and explosive and he gets beaten up a lot, but he does not once sneeze. Phew. (laughs) (laughs) And so, a free man once more, he sets out to claim his faith back from Troy now Archer, played by Travolta. Say what? And yes... 
That's a convoluted process. It's a fight and flight, then more fight fest. There's confusion, realisation, creepy face stroking. There's punching, shooting, slow-mo dove avoidance and a boat chase. No sneezing though, phew. <laughs> Through it all, Cage is caging it to the absolute cage. I think we're at Max Cage, Cage Uncaged, I don't know. And John Travolta is having the whale of his life. Our good guy eventually wins, and just to reiterate, the good guy is mainly Cage playing Travolta, but then belatedly refaced to be Travolta playing Travolta for the final scene in which he does the weird hand face thing, in case you were wondering. <laughs> Hannah's doing it to me now. I've never felt so loved <laughs> and weirded out. <laughs> the end! Just you mentioned Frank Sabotka. It's brilliant that Chris Bauer has looked seemingly the same age. <laughs> For such a huge amount of time. He's looked roughly 40 since he was about 20. And now he's in his 50s, he still looks roughly 40. But that look is angry baby. So I think when he came out, he potentially <laughs> looked exactly the same then. Yeah. Timeless. Yeah. Timeless. It's, it, it's also on the wire front. It's also got Robert Wisdom, who is Bunny Colvin. But they all have bad endings, though, in this. I don't know how you had a chance to spot these people with all of the non-stop action, Hannah. Is that the man who gets burnt alive? Yeah. That's what yeah. happens to Bunny Calvin. Yeah. Because because not only does he kill everyone who knew this plan, he seems to know everyone who knew this plan, which is incredible. He must have gone around mm. going, do you know about the secret plan? Do you know about the secret <laughs> plan? Do you know about the secret plan? My first question is... What the do fuck? You, <laughs> do you think Face Off knows it's ridiculous? I mean, I spent the whole time watching it thinking about Hannah's assessment of Conair. I don't think Nicolas Cage has a fucking clue he's ridiculous. I don't I don't think he does. That's the beginning bit with the unhappy merry go round, the unmerry go round as you put it, when he shoots the child and then his face with his ridiculous, I don't know, I guess it's meant to be a disguise because it's not there later on the tash that he's got in the first scene. It like everything about that scene set the tone for where this was going. It was so utterly ridiculous. And Cage's face, which is not very good for a podcast, but the close-up of his face, the like... <laughs> I mean, if we're talking just... about his face, my personal favourite bit was the bit where he takes drugs and looks in the mirror and then just does, <laughs> they just does this for about five minutes, <laughs> um, which is lunacy. <laughs> I like the bit where he's reflected in the doctor's glasses and he has yeah. no face but still looks like Nicolas Cage. Incredible <laughs> scenes. I don't think this is quite Conair because I don't think anyone in it realises that it's ridiculous. No. Because it's not funny. It, it oh, is it funny. Is. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's not, it's, not, it's not funny in the conventional sense. Like, Conair is funny. It has jokes in it. Mm. It's funny. Yeah, I don't think it's meant to be funny. This is just dumb as fuck. So, no, yeah. I, I, I don't think... I, I can't... Somebody jumps over a speeding bullet in this film. Somebody manages to jump over it in slow motion, obviously, a speeding bullet. The slow motion helps, though, I think, with that challenge. I mean, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's just... Fucking, I mean, fortunately, the whole thing hangs on the fact that in the future, and we know it's the future, because every time they have to keep telling us it's the future because they have to keep intercutting everything that happens with P. 
pictures of technology, of computers, because it's the future. Here's his face operation, and here's some computers showing what, what he will look like after his face operation. Here's him breaking out of a prison. Here's some guards pressing some buttons. Computers, computers, computers. Basically, it hangs on the fact that plastic surgery has moved on enormously, so the healing process is really quick, but bomb technology, quite slow. They explode a lot slower <laughs> than they used to. Now it's perfectly fine to plant one and leave it there for five days because no one's going to find it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, bearing in mind, I didn't realise that Jack Nicholson had appeared as two different characters in a film that we watched not that long ago. I didn't. I didn't realise it was the future. I just thought that there was some like nifty gadgets. I didn't feel like it was explicit enough that it was the future. It's not specified that it's the future, and in fact, the screenwriters initially set it in the future, and John Woo said, "I don't want it to be in the future." So it is supposed to be futuristic perhaps would be more futuristic. But you can generate an ear from nothing. Yeah. So, like, it's yeah. not... It's, there's stuff that they can do, miraculously, but didn't feel futuristic, because also, like, they're wearing the same clothes, they're doing the same thing. I don't know. Because, actually, can I just say, on the on the ear note, mm. in 1997, a friend of mine actually had their ear bitten off by a sailor in Portsmouth. Oh. True story. Wowzers. And he Portsmouth swallowed it. <laughs> this is what great. they offered Johnny... Have you pitched this to John Woo? <laughs> <laughs> what they offered Johnny as a replacement ear looked like it had come out of the pantomime dressing up box. <laughs> it was absolutely ludicrous. So this has to be futuristic. I mean, they generated it from nothing. Just a laser. There's just a laser which grows an ear, but whatever. <laughs> I have to say I was confused by the chronologic sequencing of events in general. How long was he in a coma for? How long is that fucking bomb in there for? Why didn't they just detonate the bomb? Why were they waiting for like, I don't know, wasn't he meant to be in a coma for months or something? Like, what? 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 John Woo doesn't want your questions, Jen. He just wants your I attention. I bet he fucking doesn't. <laughs> I bet he fucking doesn't want anyone's questions. I've got some questions. How long was that fucking runway at the start? That plane was going full whack for, I don't know, 10 minutes. <laughs> you was not worth taking off. You're almost that way you were going. <laughs> you just get to drive down. Just doing laps. Yeah, until they <laughs> hit, what, a paint pigment factory at the bottom. My God, this film is terrible. Oh, really? it's, oh see, I, I feel very differently. I have a, a lovely, lovely time. I'll tell you who else is having a lovely time. John Travolta. Because Nicolas Cage, yeah, I think you're right, Jen. I don't think he ever realises, even in Con Air, it's clear he doesn't realise he's in a comedy, whereas everyone else does. And in this, it's like he hasn't even read the script. He's just read his bits and he's given it all he's got. But John Travolta, who never gets to play this kind of wild, naughty, bad boy, I think he's having the best time ever. Yeah, I just don't like John Travolta, so it doesn't, Mm. yeah, it doesn't really do much for me. I, I can't change yeah. that. I agree that this film was fun for about 20 minutes at the start and about 20 minutes at the end by the middle bit. The six hours, 20 minutes in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> it did go on too long. I know I say that every week, but it absolutely did go on I mean, too you long. You always have a point, Jen. <laughs> Do you know what occurred to me, though, if I'm going to be kind? It occurred to me that this is a film in which two characters are playing or two actors are playing each other, essentially, or playing each other, playing each other type thing, right? <laughs> And that was probably very exciting and everything in 1997. But having watched four series of Orphan Black in which Tatiana Maslany plays Cosima 
dressed as Alison, playing Sarah, and in the same scene is Helena pretending to be somebody else. Asking me to be impressed with this subsequently is a bit like saying, oh, unplug your Wi-Fi. I've got this great new thing called dial-up. It's It just <laughs> doesn't feel... So I'm not getting that thing that was really exciting and new at the time. Because I actually saw Face Off in the cinema... I was going to ask you, have you seen, had you actually seen it before? And then I owned it on VHS, Jen, until I moved oh, house wow. three years ago. And I haven't had a video recorder for like, I don't know how long. But yeah, I had it on the The Husser and I've watched it a lot because I just find it to be mindless fun. It's just very fun to me. I can see why people find it fun because it is really, really very silly indeed. I know people say like Nicolas Cage used to make good films and whatever and, you know... Raising it Arizona is, is incredible. He has been in some, but yeah. like... That's about the only one I can think of off the top of my head, though. I mean, I would say he has done more harm than good in the profession of acting, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> Jen, have you never seen Community? No. You should watch Community anyway, because it's funny, or it's certainly yeah. funny the first couple of series. I'm pretty sure we had what you are about to say this conversation when we talked about Conair, but please continue. <laughs> okay, well, there's, a, there's an episode in which Arbed has to work out whether or not Nicolas Cage is a good actor or not. That's part of his like assignment for whatever whatever he's doing because it's set in a community college. And it sends him absolutely mad. It may not surprise you, Jen, to find out he ends up on a desk going, I'm a sexy cat. <laughs> Which I think we can all agree is probably the correct answer. I have another question for you. Because obviously they swap faces and they're like, oh, we'll get rid of your dad bod a bit, Travolta, and we'll da 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 yeah. And presumably your teeth. Teeth, all sorts of stuff. Eyes, all sorts of things. But who do you think is tallest? Nicolas Cage or John Travolta? Okay, I was not isn't... expecting a <laughs> <laughs> This makes me sound like a wanker and I'm definitely not as highbrow as it makes me sound but i went to a comic book shop in williamsburg once i know get me in my knitted tie (laughs) yeah and a tiny hat on my penny farthing (laughs) (laughs) and and i bought a comic book because i thought it was funny and i think it had snoop dogg in it which was like, I am the same height as, and then it listed all of the people (laughs) that were, and it had like a little, obviously, picture, because it was a comic book, of the different celebrities who were the same height. And I think Nicolas Cage might have been this height. Well, Snoop Dogg is huge, so yeah, I would have said Nicolas Cage is over six foot and John Travolta is under six foot, but that would have been my guess. I absolutely agreed with both of you and I thought that I was like, how have they sorted the height difference? Travolta is way shorter than Nicolas Cage and we are all three of us wrong. Travolta is five centimetres taller than Nicolas Cage. No way. How tall is Nicolas Cage instantly? Because then I'll be able to uh, ascertain. 1.83 metres. Yeah, I mean, what does that mean? I don't know, but Travolta is 1.88 metres. I'm 173 centimetres tall, which yeah, is we're 5 the same. foot 8. Five eight. Yeah. So 183 is... They're like both above six four. foot. That's like six foot. Mm. Yeah. And Travolta is taller. Can I just say, I can only assume that Snoop Dogg, it's an optical illusion, partly because he's really thin and partly Mm. because he's floating on some cloud of weed (laughs) wherever he goes. That and all the money he's getting from the Just Eat adverts. Oh, Snoop. So a little fun fact. The first actors who were envisioned by the writers to play Sean Archer and Castor Troy were, in fact, 
Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And even though I've got a lot of time that. for both of them, I, I think it's a big no for me. I don't, do you think it would have been better? Oh my God, it wouldn't have been better. But at the same time, <laughs> could it have been worse? I mean, it's really hard for me to pick. Um, let's talk about the women. I mean, briefly, I guess. So we've got Joan Allen as Eve, who is John Travolta's, the good guy's wife. Let's put it that way. Archer's wife. Dominique Swain as Jamie, the, the good guy's daughter, and Gina Gershon as Sasha, the bad guy's girlfriend, part-time girlfriend, baby mother. Um, what, what do we feel about the women? Apart from I really wanted to give Joan Allen a sandwich. She looks so sad and hungry. <laughs> well, you know, she's grieving. The daughter stuff, that I think was part of the reason that I found the middle section really hard because I was just like, oh, this is horrible. Like I was permanently stomach clenched at the thought that something terrible was going to happen because I absolutely don't trust John Woo based on what I've seen before. But something more terrible than stealing someone's face, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) And Gina, Gina Gershon, I was just really distracted by the fact that I can't believe that this was the first time that it come up that that might be his kid like five years on (laughs) it just seems so ludicrous a plot device that I couldn't I didn't even really think about I mean she's she's a go-getter certainly they all sort of add to the melee of confusion don't they of who's fighting for who and they're all like hi you're supposed to be on my side and then there's a mirror and there's more doves and (laughs) I mean it's horrific like the concept of it is actually horrific but it's the delivery of it when she comes to learn that, in fact, Nick Cage is not Nick Cage and John Travolta is not John Travolta and she's had sex with the man who killed her child. Like, yeah. it's not a nice concept. That is a horrible concept. But when she says to him, as an explanatory kind of, we've been living together as man and wife for a week. A week. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. one thing led to another. And I was just like... And your cock must look exactly the same as his <laughs> cock. I think it was originally titled Cock Off, but they had to do that. <laughs> well, I kind of feel I already sort of disappointingly know what the answer's going to be. <laughs> I'm going to ask the question anyway. Would you let me take your face off? <laughs> Rated or dated? It's... <laughs> uh, for the listener, Mickey's doing something to our faces it's it's dated mickey it's dated dated <laughs> dated yeah, i think i think a face palm actually is a relatively accurate <laughs> estimation of this film yeah i mean dated if not for the fact that it because it does go so hard on that you know here's technology it all looks really fucking stupid now yes dated well, do you know what? I agree with you. It is very, very dated, but I had a fucking blast. <laughs> <laughs> now, we don't have a rated or dated next week, but Hannah, you are back the week after with your pick, which is? Which is 2002's The Road to Perdition. Yes. The Return of Frank Nitti. That isn't The Road to Perdition. That would be The Road Colon. to Perdition 2, <laughs> wouldn't it? Colon, The Return of Frank Nitti. Incredible scenes. How many slow-mo doves? Do you think we'll count? <laughs> Standard issue for all women.